open them again, 1 John chapter 4. When the renowned theologian Karl Barth neared the end of his life, he was asked by a young man to sum up his thoughts about Christianity. No doubt, the young man expected a lengthy discussion, explanation from the learned professor and theologian. But instead, Karl Barth answered the young man's question by reciting the words of a song that all of us, most of us, learned in childhood. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Friend, Barth is right. If you were to take everything there is to know about God, it could be summed up in just three words. God is love. John first addressed the subject of God's love back in chapter 2. In verses 7 through 11, there he talks about love being an indication of one walking in the light. And then in chapter 3, we saw in, uh, that love was evidence that one is a child of God. Now, in chapter 4, here in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7 and going through chapter 3, or verse 3 of chapter 5, John goes deeper into this subject. <clears throat> the word love appears over 30 times just in this section of verses. He takes us to the very origin and the source of love, to God himself. Love is not just one of God's attributes, John would say, John is saying to us, but it is the very nature of God. If God's nature is love, John says, then everyone who is born of God shares that nature. Here's what you might take away from this text this morning. The love of God is perfected in the love displayed among His people. There are three spiritual truths about love, the love of God, that we learn from the verses before us this morning in verses 7 through 11, or 7 through 12 here in chapter 4. In the first place, I want you to see love personified. John writes, go back to the text in verse 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, does not know God because God is love. We find here that love is personified in two ways. First, we see it in God the Father. John says love is from God and God is love. So love has its source in God. It's a part of his very nature. So to say that God is love means more than just God loves us. C.H. Dodd puts it like this. He says the statement, God loves us, might stand alongside other statements such as, 
God creates, or God rules, or God judges. That is to say, it means that love is one of his activities. But to say God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity, even his judgment. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is to the expression of his nature, which is to love. Friend, this is a new concept to the people of John's day. You need to understand. No pagan religion would have ever declared their God was a God of love. Instead, they would have declared that their God was a God to be feared, was a God who was angry with people. If you study all the other major religions of the world, you'll discover that only Christianity affirms that God is love. So when John proclaims the love of God, he says something about the nature of our Father. Love finds its source in God himself. Second, John tells us about love in relation to God's family with tender affection. John says to his readers, look again in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Now, that's a statement that John will repeat twice more in verses 11 and 12. Well, why are we to love one another? Why does John say that as believers, as Christians, as followers of Christ, that we are to love each other? Look what he says, because love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, if God's nature is love, then everyone who has truly been born of God shares that nature and their love demonstrates that they truly have been born into the family of God and that they know God the Father intimately. Think about it like this. A person born physically takes on the nature or the characteristics of either one of his parents. We say he's a spinning image of his father. In the same way, when a person is born again into a God's family, they take on his nature. People will see us and they will know, they will recognize that we are the son or the daughter of God. Look, her love is like that of her heavenly father. She obviously belongs to the family of God. So love has its origin, its source in God the Father, and its evidence in our lives shows that we belong to God, that we belong to the family of God, and that God truly is our Father. In verse 8, look what John says. He, he puts it in a negative uh, way. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In other words, if I don't love others... John says, that's evidence that I really don't know God. And by logical extension, I've not been born of God. Why? Because God is love. 
if I've been born of God, then I ought to be a person of love. So here's John's logic. First, God is love. Second, those who have been born of God are God's children. God's children have God's nature. Therefore, God's children will love. So John says, love is personified in God the Father and should be in his children. Well, it's one thing to talk about love. It's something else to show it. We see in the second place, love proved. Look in verses 9 and 10. Many people are hurting today. Have you noticed that? They're wondering if anybody loves them. Everywhere I go, I see people who are hurting, who people who are just discouraged or depressed or just confused and just uh, uh, empty uh, on the inside. They, they just wonder if anybody even cares about them. Uh, some uh, have been abused. Some have been abandoned. Some have been betrayed. Some lied to. Some have been harshly judged or mistreated or deeply wounded. You may be one of those people. You have asked yourself the same questions. Does anyone really love me? Will I ever be loved? Friend, the good news is you are loved and you will always be loved by God. Let that sink in for just a minute. You are loved will always be loved by God the Father. God will never love you any more than he already does. And he will never love you any less. He loves you with an unconditional love. You are loved by a God who is love and wants to shower you with his love. Well, how do we know this? Look what John says in verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In order for mankind to understand his love, God had to prove that love. The word manifest means to make visible. God wanted to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves us. So he made himself visible through his incarnate son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, God proved his love in two ways. First, by the sending of his son, <clears throat> he says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God, look at this, sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You see, Jesus was God's only son. Now, that word only translates a word that means unique, one of a kind. There was and is no one else like God's son. John is saying God loved us so much that he sent his only child, his only son, away from heaven. He in, in, in sense, he 
encouraged him to leave him, to leave heaven, to leave his home in heaven, to leave all the glories of heaven, and to come to this earth to be the Savior of mankind. And why did God send his only son? So that we might live through him. The world of humanity was dead, without life. And without hope. But through Christ we are given life abundantly here. And eternal life in heaven. So we see God's love. He proved his love by sending his son. But that still wasn't proof enough. Not only did God prove his love by sending his son. But by sacrificing his son. Look what John says in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Look at this word. To be the propitiation for our sins. Friend, this is one of the most, this is one of the most wonderful and important verses in all the word of God. Right here. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Here we see the initiative God took in loving us. And the magnitude of that love in the sacrifice of his only son. The word propitiation means satisfaction. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews alludes to the furnishings of the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was a chest that contained the Ten Commandments along with a few other items. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, was a gold slab called the mercy seat. On the mercy seat rested the cloud or the visible symbol of God's presence. Here God was supposed to be seated and from this place he would dispense mercy to his people. The word mercy seat is the same word translated propitiation. In other words, it carries the idea of the place of satisfaction. You see, each year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed animals for atonement for the sins of the people upon that gold slab, the mercy seat. The place where God was supposed to sit. So between this holy, holy, holy God and the Ten Commandments, the law of God, which mankind had broken, was this slab upon which the blood of the sacrificial animals was poured. And I want you to understand something this morning. When God looked at the blood of those sacrificed animals, His holy demands were satisfied and the sins of His people were forgiven. What is the significance of that for us? God gave his son, the Lord Jesus, as a sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus Christ became our 
mercy seat. Our propitiation. The Lord Jesus Christ himself satisfied the holiness of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied the demands of God's law and he made it possible for God to forgive us. That is how much God loved you and me. Jesus was sent to die in our place to bear the punishment for our sins. Ty Cobb was one of the all-time greats in the game of baseball. He had a 367 lifetime batting average, 4,191 hits and 892 stolen bases. He won nine, not nine batting titles, nine straight batting titles. But Ty Cobb was also the meanest man in baseball. He would insult, humiliate, and injure other players in his pursuit of victory. He was known to make unprovoked racial slurs. He had three wives whom he verbally and physically abused. He was always getting into fistfights, arguments, and tirades against fans and players. He once pistol-whipped a would-be mugger so badly that the face of the corpse could not be identified. It would be hard to find a more apt specimen of human depravity than Ty Cobb. But the story doesn't end there. Not long before Cobb died, he was visited by a Presbyterian minister named John Richardson. Cobb told the preacher to go away. He didn't want to see him. Two days later, Richardson returned to visit Cobb. This time, Cobb allowed him to talk. And he listened as that Presbyterian pastor explained to him the plan of salvation. Ty Cobb heard about God's love for sinners like himself. He was overwhelmed with emotion. And that day, the Georgia peach said he was ready to put his complete trust in Jesus Christ to be his Savior and Lord. Two days before he died, Ty Cobb told that Presbyterian preacher, John Richardson, I feel the strong arms of God underneath me. Friend, no one has ever sinned himself beyond the love and the grace of God, including Ty Cobb. Or you. No one. The Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has proven how much he loves us by sending his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. I want you to notice in the third place, love perfected 
in verses 11 and 12. John now turns to the practical affairs of everyday life. Love must be lived out, he says, by loving one another. Look what he writes. Beloved, if God so loved us, what he means there is, if God loved us enough that he would send his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice to satisfy his holy demands, if God would do that for us, we also ought to love in the same way those around us. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, John draws a practical conclusion from the love of God expressed in the propitiation of Christ. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There ought to be no question about our love for others. If we truly understand what God has done for us, that word ought means we're bound, we're obligated to love. If God could love us in this way, if God forgive us, could forgive us of all of our sins, we should be willing to do the same for others. It is our duty. It is our responsibility. It is our res <clears throat> obligation to love others in response to God's love for us. Friend, that's how people will be convinced that our Christianity is real and that we belong to the family of God. Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John continues in verse 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, what does it mean? <clears throat> his love is perfected. Think of it like this. God is invisible. But the people of God are able to see the invisible God through the lives of those who demonstrate his love to others. John Stott says it well. Christian love is the evidence that the unseen God who was once revealed in his son is now revealed in his people when they love one another. A group of salesmen had been attending a convention in Chicago. It had been a long week. <clears throat> they were ready to go home. They were tired. They were just, you know, in a hurry, they got to the airport a little late. And so they were rushing with their tickets and their suitcases, you know, to, to get to their gate on time so as not to miss their flight. Well, in their hurry, one of the guys inadvertently kicked over a table that held a display of apples. The apples flew everywhere, all over the terminal floor. And the men 
knowing what they had done, just kept walking because they didn't want to miss their flight. They didn't stop. They didn't look back. They didn't even act like anything had happened. All but one man, that is. One man in the group stopped because he felt bad for the young girl whose apple stand had been overturned. So he told his buddies to go on without him. They waved goodbye. And he said to one of the men to call his wife when they arrived home and tell her that he would catch a later flight and he would be there shortly. The man then returned to the place in the terminal where the table had been knocked over. There were apples everywhere, all over the floor. The man was glad that he returned. You see, the 16-year-old girl selling the apples was totally blind. She was sitting on the floor, softly crying, tears running down her cheeks in frustration while helplessly groping for the apples that had fallen on the floor. The crowd in the airport was going on around her, not paying any attention, showing no concern, no compassion, not willing to help at all. So the man knelt down on the floor, where the young girl was sitting. He began to gather up apples, put them back in a basket on the table. He helped organize the display. He noticed that many of the apples had become battered and bruised from hitting the floor. So he set those aside, and he pulled out his wallet, and he said, here, He said, please take this $40 for the damage that we did. And then he asked, are you okay? She nodded through her tears as if she were. And then he said, I hope we didn't spoil your day today. As the man turned to walk away, the bewildered blind girl called out, Mr. The man turned back looked into those blind eyes and that young teenage girl said are you Jesus the man stopped in mid stride he thought to himself then slowly he turned around and he went to catch his later flight with that question burning in his soul. Are you Jesus? Friend, do people mistake you for Jesus? That's what John is implying here in this text. Isn't that what a Christian's goal should be? To be so much like the Lord Jesus, that people can't tell the difference 
we live and interact with a world that is blind to his love and his mercy. If we claim to know Jesus, John says, if we truly understand that God has loved us so much that he sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice, to satisfy the holy demands of God. If we truly understand and grasp that, we ought to be so humbled by that that we would love all men, everyone that God puts in our lives so that we face of Jesus to a world that is desperately thirsting for God to love. May God help us to love one another as God in Christ Jesus first loved us. Let's pray.